I'm totally like honored you would even think of me, but Gray is 105 years old. Am I really the right person for the job? Because I just went into the interview going, I'm just going to go for this because the one thing I'm really excited about is it scares me, but that means it's an opportunity for growth. An opening up of a dream position led her to uproot to the UK, where she became a champion for women, driving forward true change. I was walking along Commercial Road. A friend of mine, who was Chief Creative Officer at Digitas, drove past in a car and like stopped and went, hey, how are you doing? And I went, I'm fine, I've just got this job offer. And he went, do you want to come and work with me instead? And I went... Yourself and your MD were the first women to go on maternity leave in the company's history. Yeah, I remember having morning sickness or, you know, in really important client meetings and having to, like, hide how sick I was feeling and then running to the bathroom and being sick and coming back going, I don't even know how to approach this. Focus on what you're good at and make it shine like the sun so that no one sees the stuff that you're not good at because the stuff you're not good at is going to be someone else's sun. So much better to focus on what you're good at. Greetings, I'm Ashley Samuels McKenzie. And I'm Charles Parkinson. And welcome to How I Became. Where we unveil the unscripted journeys of inspirational figures. Hi, I'm Laura JB, and this is How I Became President and Chief Creative Officer at Grey UK and founder of She Says, OK and Can't Festival. Outsiders, misfits and people outside the norm. This guest story starts in the land of Australia, in Canberra where she was born. Growing up in Sydney, she had no care to conform to the norms of society, including being the one girl in a footballing league of boys. She's certainly not afraid of notoriety. An opening up of a dream position led her to uproot to the UK, where she became a champion for women, driving forward true change. She's involved in so many brands, who knows where to start? Welcoming founder of She Says, Oko, Can't Festival, and President and Chief Creative Officer at Grey, Laura Jordan Lambach. <laughs> that was banging. Thank you. Welcome. So this is the story of how you got to where you are. Yep. The entrepreneurial endeavours um, and amazing, amazing stories that we'll get into. But to begin with, I will introduce you properly. You've twice been named one of Britain's most influential people within the Brett's 500 annual list. You were ranked number one on the Drums Digerati list of the top 100 most influential digital individuals in the UK, 2014. The Guardian has called you a digital female icon. <laughs> you were recognized as one of BBC's 100 women of 2017 and awarded an honorary doctorate for your services to graphic design from the University of Arts London. In 2007, we'll talk about this. She says you co-founded that yep. with Alessandra Lariu, which is a global mentoring and network group that encourages women to pursue careers in digital and marketing with over 40,000 members, 43 cities worldwide, won six can lines, nine DNADs, and you're a trained taxidermist. Yeah. To finish. Yeah. And I would, I would say absolutely. And I would say probably um, those stats... Uh, we've got about 90,000 members now, I think, and she says. So it is growing. Look at that. More than double. <laughs> Still growing. Ones. Yeah, yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. Um, so we'll hear the story of that as well. It's a very uh, impressive career and life of someone who sees problems in the world and does something about it. Yeah. So we're going to hear all the stories of, of how you did that. But first, tell us a little bit about Grey. For those who don't know, this is the company you're currently at. Yeah. President. 
Chief Creative Officer. Tell us about it. Yeah, so Gray is uh, the oldest advertising agency in the world. It's 105 years old. Mm. Um, it was, it's got a beautiful origin story of its own, actually. It was set up by two teenagers in New York who were Jewish and couldn't get any work because they were Jewish. Um, so they decided to set up their own agency working for companies that were friends of the family and people that they knew. Um, and it's named Gray because actually they felt like they would get so much prejudice with their Jewish surnames that they named it after the color of the wall in the agency, hence Gray. Um, so it, uh, you know, I'm really proud to be working there. I think we had the first, uh, ever creative female as well in, I don't want to say the date, but uh, early 1920s, I think, who was a copywriter. Um, and it's always had a history of kind of moving and changing with the times and kind of, I guess, kind of supporting diversity and inclusion for, for a really long time, which is obviously something incredibly close to my heart and my own personal story. So uh, we're now in 200 odd people in London, but we're still all over the world. So I think there are 32 studios around the world. Um, and I'm very lucky to be running the, the UK office. Cool. Yeah. And uh, clients like Pringles. Yeah. So we do a lot of work for Pringles, who are just an absolute delight. And um, we actually just won two golds at one show this week for work that we did with them. Um, they still talk about pop. You just can't stop. No that's, no, that's actually weirdly, it's long gone, but it's in everyone's memory. So, but the pop is still very, very important. <laughs> cool. The pop is important. Uh, so, you know, they're absolutely fantastic. We do a lot of work with HSBC, work with Halion, um, work with uh, a lot of, of charity clients like Peter, for example, uh, work with Vodafone in Ireland, who are, again, beautiful clients, Bank of Ireland. Uh, we've got, you know, we're a big agency, so we work across a huge number of kind of sectors and what have you, a lot of Volvo, uh, a lot of P&G. I feel like we've uh, got to that point where you're doing like an awards thank you and you feel like oh, I know I'm like who have I left out I'm gonna say everyone now I know I know I feel so bad because uh, like, honestly the clients that we've got are uh, really wonderful but you know that you always have kind of special people I think and I think you know for me that the clients at Pringles are just so collaborative and yeah I love, love them <laughs> the question is how did you get to this position and we will go back in time yeah we're just going to start the podcast there yeah but we'll go Go back in time to Canberra, Australia. Yes. Where everything began. Mm -hmm. um, you described yourself as feeling like an outsider. Yeah. Why do you say that? I've never felt like I fitted in as part of the usual narrative. I think, you know, in any culture, in any society, there is a narrative that you're supposed to follow throughout your life that as a narrative based on your gender or based on your skill set or based on your family circumstances. Um, and I've always just not quite quite fit into that box. So, you know, going back to, I mean, I think Canberra for me, which was sort of the first eight years or so of my life, was actually a really wonderful, um, really interesting time. It's a, probably no one's been. I think it's the the least exciting capital city in the world I shouldn't say that because Canberra is actually quite buzzing now but when I was younger you know like the entire place is designed by one architect oh, wow. right so the entire city is you know kind of 
is planned and it's, I don't know whether anyone knows the history of Canberra, but it's a, a false capital in the way that Brasilia is a false capital. So at the Federation of Australia, when all the states were coming together, Victoria refused to join the rest of Australia to become a country if Sydney became the capital. So they built a whole new territory, the Australian Capital Territory, and built Canberra in the centre of that, and that became the capital to allow everyone to come together and form a country, mm. which is only 100 and something years, like, you know, early 100 years old, maybe 110 years old or something when that happened. So it's a very new place. Younger than this building. Yeah. Everything is new. Everything is really well town planned. And the only people really living there, not entirely, but are military or or uh, political. Mm. So it's the political ca- capital. Um, and because of that, like it's very orderly, it's very clean. Uh, the schools are really, you know, my experience anyway, very well organized and very well planned. And there's sort of high level of a- achievement in the, you know, state school system and all of those kinds of things. So it was very easy place to grow up as a young kid. I think as you get older, I think it also used to have anyway, like the biggest um, uh, class A drug problem in the country. It's the only place where porn is still illegal and that you can buy fireworks. So it's like a weird, it's a weird kind of place that is like both the light and the dark, I think, of Australia. And and at that time, so you had some interesting experiences there. One yeah. of those, you were, as Ash mentioned in the poem, really into football. Yeah. Played in the football team, yep. having a great time, and then they go, "Sorry, yeah, no more." Yeah, absolutely. So, look, I have been a football fan my entire life. Is this the football as we call it in England, or yeah, football? So, soccer. I'm I'm, I'm being untrue to my Australian roots at soccer. <laughs> um, yeah, but football as we call it here, and there used to be no Australian league, and so if you wanted to follow a football team, you watched what used to be called First Division, which is now the Premier League. Um, and as a little girl, which is why I'm a, a lifelong Crystal Palace supporter, Crystal Palace is like Barbie's castle, right? You're like, oh my God, it's a palace na- like made of crystal. So I became a huge Crystal Palace fan. Because of the name? Cause he, yeah, because I crystal thought... Crystal Palace. Yeah. So I bet you were sad <laughs> when you went there and discovered... Oh, you know what? But we've got we've got heart here. It's, it's, it's not the Crystal Palace I expected, but I think it's the Crystal Palace I wanted. Yeah, nice. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, it was super into it and there was no way of a girl at that time playing football. There were no female clubs. There were only boys clubs. Um, and my parents have always been amazingly supportive, kind of supporting the fact that I wanted to do things that are a bit different. So, um, you know, I wanted to join the Scouts, not the Girl Guides. And they actually went to the local council and fought for me to be part of the Scouts and they didn't win. Um, but it was really great to know they were there and they had my back and that they were going to try to make it happen for me. And the same with football. So my parents were like, okay, you're going to go play with the boys. So I joined a football team and until I was 16, I played in an entire boys division. Um, what did and, the other guys think? Um, I, for my teammates, I was just one of the team, yeah. an amazing coach as well, uh, who was a woman who was also massively supportive because you get older Maybe it's a bit, I mean, I used to cop a lot of flack, but, you know, I think I was hopefully good enough to, to you know, remained on the team. What uh, position did he play? Either left back or left half. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I'm a, I'm a lefty. <laughs> um, Still play today? 
ever? No. You know what? I used to play about three times a week until I was about, until I moved here actually. Um, and then I came here and I just didn't know how to orient myself and where to find a, a, a team at that point. Um, but I used to play in my school team as well, which was the female team. And uh, weirdly, my school was in a all boys league in terms of playing the other schools. So we would always only play boys teams. <laughs> we used to have some really good moves actually to freak the boys out when I was a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds fun. So you, uh, before obviously we'll get to moving to the UK later, but yeah. eventually you moved to Sydney. Uh-huh. So I came up to Sydney in primary school and that was a real shock because as I said, in Canberra, everything is like ordered and really well planned and I'd say like quite gentle in a way. And then Sydney is a massive, bustling metropolis um, and you know, remember actually going home to my mom after the first day of school and she said how was school and I said it's like it's so much easier in the classroom but it's so much harder in the playground and again I just didn't feel like I fitted for whatever reason you know I I look at um and I, I did back then as well look at particularly you know the girls that I was supposed to be kind of hanging out with and the conversations I was supposed to be having with them and the way I was supposed to dress and how I was supposed to care about my hair and it still is completely alien to me, but it was so alien to me then. I'm like, I just, I don't know how to perform to be you. And I don't know how to like the things that you like. And I don't know how to be interested in the things that you're interested in. You know, I was interested in, like I said, football, reading, maths. I was really into maths. Um, so I ended up finding my own little kind of group, of, I guess, of misfits at, at primary school. And we were kind of really close, but we would go off and we'd write novels together and kind of then you know play those novels out um I would spend all my time in the library you know I'd get to school really early and just sit in the library and read books and after school I'd go to the library and read until the library closed um so I just yeah I just wasn't kind of part of whatever it was that was going on boys I don't know not interested I don't understand it what's going on um so yeah, so it's always been like a little bit of a sitting in my own little place somehow, I guess. Which is a theme that yeah, kind of continues throughout throughout your life. Um, and then fast forwarding a little bit to you go to study at university. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How does that go? Yeah, so I I I went to um, I, I'm going to sound like a wanker, but I I went to like this nerd school, right? So a, a grammar school in Sydney and you take a bunch of tests and they take the top 120 people in the year across the state and they get a, a spot at this high school. So in my year, it happened to be there were 100 boys in my year and 20 girls because that's how the tests ended up that year. Um, so everyone expected me to go off and to do something really nerdy, like to, to follow maths or to follow science but my love was really art and so when I went to university I decided to go to art school which was a little bit of a shock to my parents but again they like got behind it and went okay you're going to art school are you sure you don't want to do uh architecture or um uh product design or you know industrial design something that involves maths as well I'm like no I don't want to do that um so I went off to art school um and uh within I, I actually, I started in painting 
And within the first 12 weeks of being there, I realized painting wasn't for me. And again, I guess it's the story of my life, the way they taught painting, which I now realize is a really good way to teach painting, is teaching all the basics first. So the first 12 weeks, we had a, a sphere, a cube, and a pyramid, all painted white on a white plinth. So you have to paint it perfectly in black and white, and then in a warm color and white, and then in a cool color and white, mm. and then in a warm and a cool color and white. And then you have to paint it in realistic colors. And that is your first three months at art school. So by the end of it, I'm like, fuck this. And so I painted, it, angles. <laughs> I painted it the way I wanted to paint it, which is all of these, you know, um, contrasting colors and, you know, sort of went to town. And my teacher, bless him, like he was going kind of through after he marked everything and he just pulled mine out and went, I see we have a colorist amongst us in this really kind of disparaging tone. And I, just thought like no I can't continue doing this for another three years so um, uh, I was doing photography as a minor and um, the only so it's the only thing I could transfer into without losing credit points so I thought I'll transfer into photography digital media sat in photography at the time because I didn't know where to put it um, so I did the like traditional photography course but got more and more into doing the computing side of things so that became my major um, and there were only two of us in my year doing digital media. So we had these like amazing labs. We had amazing teachers, like phenomenal artists, like right at the beginning, I guess, of digital art. Um, and just me and this guy, Pierre Stocks, like hanging out in the lab together, <laughs> making stuff. But, you know, it's where I learned HyperCard, which t turned into like HTML. It's where I learned director and learned to animate. I learned about sound. I learned about illustration and, um, yeah, kind of forge my own little path I guess so you're just yeah immersed in this new world of digital yeah. media teaching yourself coding yeah digital all aspects yeah absolutely then this is just after this is when the cyber feminist magazine comes in exactly so so one of the reasons I decided to go to art school in the first place is there's an amazing female cyber feminist collective who no longer exists called VNS Matrix. And when I was in year 11, I was driving my car because I grew up kind of on the outskirts of Sydney on a, like a small, not really a farm, but like on an acreage out in the middle of nowhere. I was driving into town and I looked up and there was this big billboard and it was one of their artworks and it was like VNS Matrix, the clitoris is a direct line to the matrix. And I thought that, wow, like I want to do that. So, you know, I was really interested in it. And, um, and then uh, Geek Girl happened while I was in my first couple of years of, of university, and it was the world's first cyber feminist hyperzine. What that means is it was a website and a magazine, which was totally revolutionary at the time. I think we uh, were like in Wired as one of the top 20 websites in the world, which is hilarious now that they used to go. These are the top 20 websites in the whole world. <laughs> um, but like in your early 20s or late teenagers working on one of the top, 20 yeah. websites in the world yeah and and i found like i found a place where i could use my like my maths and my art to do really exciting things because coding came really easily to me um how i fell into to to geek girl is i'd been to their i'd been to their launch i say they it was founded by this woman rosie cross and it was really her um and uh, she's a journalist and i was completely inspired by what she was writing about, like no one else was talking about the fact that there were no women in technology at the time. When you went online into these early spaces, you had to pretend to be 
male because if you presented as a woman you would just get sexual harassment like like nothing else so um so she was the first person to really find kind of mentors and heroines of the of digital around the world and interview them and talk to them about their lives and what they were doing and so then part of what I used to do to put myself through university is as well as being a taxidermist was I used to take secondhand clothes and mend them and sell them at markets mm. and I was at uh, this market called Glebe Market and Rosie had a table there and she had all of the she had copies of the magazine all these amazing stickers like girls need modems and put down your pony and pick up a computer which I think is brilliant and so I went to you know buy some of her things and talk to her about it um, and I've got a like a big Escher tattoo on my stomach of a web. It's like spiders and scorpions intertwined into a web. Uh, and so she saw it, went, oh, brilliant, web, worldwide web. Uh, can I put it on the like the next issue of the magazine? And I said, yeah, sure. And then she called and said, oh, the photographer's dropped out, not going to be able to do it. Uh, sorry. And I said, well, I do photography at uni. I could take a picture of my stomach, which I did. And then she called and said, the person doing the website in the magazine, like the designer has dropped out, so we're not going to do this issue. And I went, well, I, I can do that. Um, not knowing, actually, that you use things like InDesign to design magazines, not Photoshop. So I did the whole thing in Photoshop <laughs> and, um, and, you know, and coded, cut and coded the website. And at that time, there was no software to, to make websites. You had to do it all by hand in Notepad and then copy the code over and then check the code in a browser and have you and she just went look that's brilliant anything you learn how to do I'll give you a job how to do it and that's how I ended up working with Geek Girl for many many years love that <laughs> what a story yeah some say we make our own luck by being ready yeah absolutely and just going yeah I, I think I can do that <laughs> what do you think the lesson in the story is Sash be ready I think if you're if you've got a certain set of um, wants from from what you're doing, or a certain set of um, interests. Mm. If they're really that prominent in your mind, I've, I'm always a believer that you'll find, you know, you'll find the thing that you're meant to find at the right time. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. The the next real chapter seems to be to do with Terra Planet. Oh God, yes. Oh, that's brilliant. You have done your research. I'll tell you a little bit about what was going on behind the scenes. I hope I don't jump the gun with you, you but. Um, so behind the scenes, I was forming an artist collective with the people that I was at university with. Um, we took out a lease on an, like an abandoned warehouse floor. It was totally empty. It was trashed. We built our own walls. We built our own rooms. And we built a gallery in the middle. It's um, all in Sydney, this. It was all in Sydney. Uh, the web, the, the um, warehouse was called Imperial Slacks. So uh, we called ourselves the Imperial Slackers. A lot of them have gone on to be like quite famous artists and represented Australia at the Biennale and all sorts of things that I'm enormously proud of but they were like my second family so um, amazing people brilliant artists uh, we were all very passionate about like queer art and outsider art and really pushing the boundaries of of what art was I guess so all of that was going on um, and uh I was sick of working in shops and sick of doing all sorts of different things. So um, I realized that what I was doing is my art, I could make money out of because no one else knew how to code. So I set up my own business called Joystick Digital Media and myself and sometimes my brother, who's a phenomenal um, 
coder. We just basically go into an advertising agency for three days and cut and code everything and um, get their stuff. You know, there would literally be questions like a InDesign file of a form going, how does that go onto the internet? And then what happens with the information when you put it in? And it's like, okay, you need a database, so we'll write you a database, or you need this, and we'll write you that. So you were you're like 21, 22 at this stage. Yeah, yeah something something like that. It sounds like you were doing like consultancy for... Yeah, kind of. I learned. I learned a lot about running a. Learned a lot about running a business and contracts and getting things right and getting things wrong back then. So this was the business that I started when I was in the warehouse, and that enabled me to get the job at TerraPlanet. Um, and TerraPlanet was kind of the equivalent of EMAP in a way. It was a. It was a. Um, a stable of magazines, really interesting ones. So there was a magazine called Juice, which is like was like the Aussie Rolling Stone. There was an amazing architecture magazine, amazing design magazine. It's the equivalent of like OK magazine, like all of these things within the one place. And I was hired as the creative director to come in and to help them move all of their print content online and like understand what digital publishing even was and how you could create a business that allowed people access to content online whilst still selling paper magazines. Um, and you know, all of these things started happening like music. I mean, it was, I say music streaming, it wasn't really music streaming, but you know, being able to embed a track on a website and then what happened, who owns the digital rights and all of this was like so new. So, so help them navigate that for, for quite a while. And it was an absolute ball actually. And is this where you started to have, a, you had a dream job? Yeah. Dream dream role that you wanted and, and it sort of started to form here. Yeah. So I um as well as working at, at Terra Planet, um, because I was only one of two people who'd done digital media as my bachelor degree, I was asked to write the bachelor degree in digital media because I realized it couldn't sit in photography anymore. So over the summer I helped them write the first year of that course. And then I mean, how many people do a degree and then get asked? Oh, do you mind coming I, back? And you know what? Writing another one. It was one. so much fun because I'm like, what is all the cool that I can like impart on these people who are only a couple of years younger than me? That must have been an amazing degree to do. Whoever, whoever went through that, I'd <laughs> love so to hear. Because I taught most of it as well because there wasn't anyone to teach it. So I like wrote it, taught it. Um, and um, so I feel at yeah. this point that like, man, life's going great. I am flying. I'm see people seem to want to know about what I like and I seem to be at the cutting edge of this thing like how did it you know what? I never I've never I never think about life in that way at all I just think about what I'm experiencing how exciting it is how much I want to do a you know like in in that case like a good job for the students and give them something that they will have never experienced before I wasn't thinking about like everyone thinks I'm doing a great job or wow I can't believe I'm here. It just seemed like a really natural thing when they said, do you want to write the degree? I'll go, yeah, like, of course I'm going to write the degree and pulled in really interesting people also that I knew to kind of, you know, help contribute to the, to the, to the degree. Um, so yeah, so I was working at Terra Planet and I was teaching this course and as part of this course, you know, they would get, um, international speakers in. And so I was sitting in the audience watching this international speaker called Simon Waterfall, who is a dear kind of friend and mentor of mine now. Um, and he 
was running the coolest digital agency in the world at the time called Deepend. They had offices all over the world. They were all in their 20s. He was like a real, I don't know, like boundary breaker, you know, blue mohawk. He was always in a wedding dress or in a kilt. Um, brilliant fun, like huge amounts of heart and just the work was wildly good. So I went up to him afterwards and said, I really want to work for your agency because he was opening in Sydney. And he said to me, like, you know, show me your portfolio, which I did, not and I hadn't been trained in design or anything. I really wanted to be a designer. I wanted to be a designer at his agency. And he said, look, um, I only hire like best designers in the world. And you're not a trained designer. And even though I was doing like lots of design and I could build things and what have you, so he said, you know, go and learn about this stuff like learn a bit more about typography learn about this whatever I'll be back in three months because I'm setting up the agency come and see me again and the thing one of the things I'm most thankful of in my career actually is that there have been people who've seen something in me yet that I haven't seen in myself I'd say Rosie is one of them Simon was one of them um so you know I would go and see him you know meet up with him wherever like in a pub every time he came to Sydney portfolio still not good enough and then finally he went, you know, basically your portfolio is still not good enough because I only hired the best designers in the world. So after how long? But you're quite, I don't know, probably, you know, I don't know, maybe it could be a year. It seems like longer than a year, but it was probably a year. So a whole year of you, he, you'd meet <laughs> him, him. he'd be like, I still want to work for you. He'd be like, still need to learn some stuff. You got yeah. it for three months, come back, come back. And you were just determined. Yeah. And so then he said, look, fine, like finally, um, I've got a job as a producer do you want to work as a producer? And I went, absolutely. Mm. So I left Terra Planet, went to work there as a producer. And of course, then I was working alongside the best designers in the world. And I learned so much. Excellent. You know, everything I've learned has been on the job. Um, but that was, that was really, really phenomenal. And then, yeah. And then probably 18 months after that, a year, 18 months after that, he gave me a call and went, I've got a job for you as a designer, but it's in London. It's a junior designer. You'll be on 12 grand a year do you want to come? And I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> so I dropped everything and moved over. Did you ever have it in your mind that you had moved to the UK or London? No, never. Uh, absolutely never. Would you remember the moment he told you that? What did you think? Were you like... I was just like, pack up my house, let's go. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> absolutely. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. So you start your life in, in the UK. Yeah. How was the first period? What was it like? I found it really weird, actually. So I'd, I'd spent a lot of time in Japan. I, I did like sort of months at a time in Japan doing various things like teaching at a university there. Um, and uh, that I expected to be really, really different. And it was like, the, you know, the culture is different, the language is different and everything is different. And because you expect it, you're kind of open to it. When I moved to the UK, I thought everything would be the same as Australia because, do you know, where all your convicts, right? We stole all your bread. <laughs> um, but uh, the little things just really knocked me for six. And I think the thing that knocked me the most is, in London anyway, I would say if you're a Geordie, um, ignore this because Geordie's brilliant and very direct. Um, but in London, like no one says what they think. Everything is coded. There are ways of saying stuff that are very, very clear to people who come from the south of England or the, the you know the south of the UK uh that that make no sense to anyone else so um 
you know, someone would give me feedback on my work and in Sydney, my creative director would go, sorry, mate, you work shit, do it again. Here, there would be all of this like intrigue, like, yeah, it's like, it's a bit, and maybe this, this thing here is a bit interesting. And what they meant was the work is shit, do it again. But because I didn't ever said it, I never did it. And I kind of learned the hard way how to kind of adapt to the way people talk. Um, I would also always be giving my numbers out to people who asked me whether I wanted to go for a coffee because I thought this is brilliant. I'm making new friends. I need to realize that in in Lond- Londonese, that means do you want a shag? Um, <laughs> and then you'd end up going, oh my God, I've given someone my number, but but that's not what I want. I actually just want a coffee and like, ah. <laughs> so it took me a while to get my head around. Um, you know, obviously... You know, all Brits like talking about the weather. The weather is completely different. Um, I mean, there's so much that's different that I didn't expect. And then, so you're kind of, yeah, getting used to this whole new world and culture. And yeah. And you'd been used to a guy saying to you for 12 months, your work's crap or you need to learn more and yeah. do it again. All these yeah. kind of mixed learnings. But you did make progress. You yeah. spent two two years there. Yeah, and not, not even. I was kind of there until the dot-com crash in... I want to say maybe 2002, just before the dot-com, well, when the dot-com crash was happening. Was it 2001? Thank you. Yeah, that would be it. 2001. Um, So I kind of moved over here and then I realized that something was up in the industry. Yeah, I just felt that something wasn't right. Um, And I could see the stress around the deep end offices and the tension and um, I'd be promised a pay rise and I hadn't got a pay rise and I was thinking, what is... You're still on 12, going... 12 grand. Yeah. What's going on? So then um, I thought, I think I'd better look for a new job. And I didn't know what was coming, but I knew something was coming. And actually I found a job at this amazing agency called Lateral. And then probably six weeks after I had left, the entire business crumbled. So the everyone was called into a room one day and told the agency is no more. You can't go back to your desk because the you know people coming to sell the computers are coming to well, take everything. It was like that. It was that full on. I mean, the dot com crash put a lot of people out of work all over the world, all like within the space of a couple of months. Mm. Um, but I, I was incredibly lucky in that I had just found this new place, Lateral, which is still you know they're still brilliant friends and it was the maddest experience to work in this agency that I'd ever had because they were less an agency and more like an anarchist collective I would say (laughs) there were a lot of people a lot of co-founders all with different roles it was very alternative they had this brilliant I mean which I still think is brilliant if we were going to take on a new client everyone in the agency would be asked, is this a client we want to take on? And we would have a discussion about it. Um, and they purposefully kept themselves small. So if it meant hiring another 10 people to take on a new client, they wouldn't do it. It was like this small, really tight team, a lot of people in there who were like incredibly creative and almost like artists, I would say. Ridiculous people and ridiculous behavior and all just just beautiful. They're beautiful people. Our business cards... Um, you didn't have a job title when you were there. You got to choose your own job title and it had to be lateral something. So I was a lateral tinker. Uh, but my my friend, who's still one of my best friends, Elvin, um, who came in as an account person, was lateral corporate whore. 
And, then, and that was allowed on her card, which I thought was brilliant. <laughs> Is there anything from that time there that you learned that you still kind of use today? Yeah, look, I, I learned a lot because they really put you in the deep end and let you like sink or swim a lot of the time. So I learned, I think I found my voice there. I learned to give feedback and I learned that if I spotted something in the work and I didn't speak up about it, it you know, it was, it was my responsibility then if we were on the hook and the work wasn't good enough and it was because of that mm -hmm. thing. Um, I learned to kind of trust the fact that I could actually spot stuff that was good. I learned a lot about how to manage people and also how not to manage people. I mean, it was, it was, it was a really formative time in, in my life and enabled me then to kind of go on and straight into like a job as head of design, which is, which is phenomenal. Like I, I learned a ton at that place. As you said, you get your job as head of design mm -hmm. at ID Media mm -hmm. London. Yep. You spend about a year there. Yeah. It's time for glue. And it's time for glue. So yeah, like I always think that there are places that work out and then places that don't. I like I always feel like now as a as a leader and as someone with a team, you don't own anyone and to have the the ego or the gall to think that you own people and somehow they're always gonna be better at your agency, even if they're not performing or what have you, or to try to fix people or what have you. It's it's not the right way because everyone has places where they thrive and places that don't suit them. And I would, you know, comfortably say I went into ID Media. I was going through quite a lot of stuff in my personal life as well. And it just wasn't the right place for me. And it's almost like I couldn't put my finger on what it was, but it just didn't sit well with me. Um, so Glue came along and actually how Glue came along is Glue used to be part of Deep End. So Glue used to be the advertising, digital advertising bit of Deep End. And they were always seen within Deep End, almost, I don't want to say the poor cousins, but they, because they were doing advertising and not pure like design and branding, they were always a little bit to one side. But the the trio of people who founded Glue are, are brilliant. And um, I bumped into Mark Cridge, who was the CEO at Glue, and he went, oh, look, we're looking for a head of art. Come in, and I think I did, I mean, I did many, many hours of, of interviews. I really had to prove myself and prove that, I was going to be able to lead like technology, experience, design, animation, everything to do with the craft of the work was kind of under my remit. Technology ended up like popping out the side. Um, but, uh, you know, when I first stepped in there, I think there were 30 of us. Why do you think they chose you? And what, what did you say in those interviews? That think I don't know, I'd like to think it was about my work, but it was probably also about my passion. Yeah. You know, my my passion for making great things. Um, I'm quite fearless, I think, when it comes to making work. You learn when you're working in digital and innovation and had gone, th you know, had gone through literally from no internet existing at all to this massive thing taking off, so many changes. You get used to creating work where you're not sure whether it's actually possible when you start doing it. And there are kind of ways to like ma mitigate that risk and kind of manage it and get to a really good place. So I think like part of it is like the, the fearlessness in going in to, to make great work where you might not succeed, right? You might go out to make something and realize it's actually technically not possible yet. <laughs> mm. Well, it sounds like a lot of the areas that 
you were being interviewed about what areas that you'd kind of experienced in your younger days that you tinkered with or grown through as yeah absolutely and and certainly you know even back at art school um i a lot of the work i did wasn't on screen it was like taking the on-screen stuff or taking taking digital experience or interactive experiences and making them real so you know pulling apart motion sensors from the hardware store and wiring them up to you know various different things to to create these kind of digital experiences um and all of that you know really came in handy because again like a lot of where the interesting digital work was happening yes it was the internet but it was all over the you know it was all over the place and um you could be making a robot as easily as you could be making a banner ad so yeah um while you're at glue they experienced something. Glue experienced something for the first time, yeah. which is yourself and your MD were the first women yeah. to go on maternity leave yeah. at the, in the company's history. Yeah, and I think for any mothers listening who've been through this, or any yeah. future mothers that may go through this, uh, yeah, share share what 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 the experience was like for you. Yeah, so uh, look, I think it's a lot better now because despite best intentions I mean Joe and I didn't know what we were gonna what was happening to us <laughs> Joe's the other uh, yeah Joe yeah. Joe's the MD um did you go on mat, mat leave at the same time yeah, basically the same week right. um so we didn't really even know what was going on with us and um the rest of the company certainly didn't know and and digital is quite a, as as with most of my life spending a lot of time with men um you know the digital industry is kind of very male dominated as well so I think no one even had anything to like ground it on. You know, Joe did a great job in trying to pull it together, but I I really struggled with. You know, we had some really big pieces of work that I really wanted to deliver, and some really tough clients. And I remember having morning sickness the first trimester and being so ill and being there till you know midnight, two o'clock in the morning, running into the bathroom, puking, coming back. Or, you know, in really important client meetings and having to, like, again, like, hide how sick I was feeling and then running to the bathroom and being sick and coming back going, I can't even, like, don't even know how to approach this. Like, how do you approach something like morning sickness when you've never kind of seen it or experienced it and the company doesn't know how to look after you? Um, And when I came back from maternity leave, something that I really, really, which is, so I founded She Says when I was pregnant. Um, and worked on She Says the whole way through, you know, sort of my my maternity leave. And she Says is the is the network. It's the network. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For women um, digital. Absolutely, and sort of more broadly as well, sort of women in, any woman in the creative industries, we kind of help them to progress their careers. But yeah, we... You we founded that while you were pregnant. Yeah. Wow. And then, and then I did a lot of work. What I realised is I'm a quite a high energy person, and... I'm not very good at sitting around and my son also didn't sleep and wouldn't sit still and actually if I sat him on my lap he'd cry I would have to be moving around to keep him keep him quiet so I would just stick him in the baby bjorn and like go everywhere and I was you know having meetings about she says and running events with him stuck in the front and um yeah all all sorts of stuff sort of out in the world when I got back to work um I realized that everyone saw me in a different way, regardless of whether they meant to or not. It's suddenly like as if I lacked all ambition and 
I felt like I was being enormously underestimated and everyone, and it was a really kind thing for people to say, oh, don't you want to spend more time at home with your son? And wouldn't you like to, you know, are you sure you're not working too much? And I'm like, this is what I like. I get my energy through work. I love what I do. Don't block my access to the thing that I love, even if it's out of kindness. So for for men listening, are in this scenario where a woman comes back from mat leap. What's your advice for them on how to how to deal with that? What I think ask, ask, don't assume. Mm. Yeah, say like you know, ask ask about how much they're enjoying it. Don't you know? Ask whether they want to be on that pitch or not. Don't just assume that mm. they don't want to suddenly because they've got a kid. And then on the flip side of that question, what yeah. would you say to to um? women that are coming back from mat leave back into the into the office and professional environment. Yeah, look, I, I think it is different for everyone. And I realise that my passion for coming back to work is probably as much of an edge case as someone who never wants to go back to work again. And there is a whole spectrum of things in the middle. And, you know, it depends on your personal circumstances, you know, what is going on within your family, a, a whole range of things. So I would just say never feel guilty for how you feel or whatever whatever you want to do however you want to come back to work or not is is the right thing to do you should never compare yourselves to other women and what they're doing and how they're coping or what it is that they want it's something that has come up a few times in this sort of yeah you you come back from maternity leave and you just it's almost like you have to start back from scratch again or you have to re re um you know, qualify yourself in people's minds yeah. that you're a cool person, you're creative, you got this sparkly yeah, thought. Yeah. What do you think needs to change to help improve that transition back into it? That is a very good question. Uh, because, you know, you often, you've obviously got time to reflect as well when you're on maternity leave and you might come back and your priorities might be very different. I think just making sure that there is, again, like space for discussion about what it is that someone wants and how they want to show up at work and what they're comfortable with and what from home they want to bring into the office. And if that's done in a really clear way, I think with the kind of senior management, this, they will then become your allies to make sure that that stuff happens so that you're included. Because mm. you do need allies. You come back and it's it's a very weird feeling to kind of come back into a place. When I When I came back to Glue, one of the big things was I was still very hands-on in the work, so I was, you know, still really a flash, de- a flash developer and, you know, programmer and designer as as kind of well as running the team. I left for nine months, came back. Everything had changed, even the like, even the language that you used for Flash had changed. CSS, if anyone knows style sheets, style sheets happened while I was on maternity leave. So you went from plain HTML all in one list of code to suddenly working with these other um other sort of page elements or what have you which are all kind of stored with whether it's css or javascript in other places so just like the the structure of the things i was building had fundamentally changed um and i realized to kind of get up to speed and to keep up to speed with all of that stuff with a small kid that was going to be impossible because i used to spend all my nights like noodling about on the on, on my machine, which is when I thought, okay, what I need to do is I need to step into sort of more of a creative direction role. 
where I could be a bit more hands-off and I'm in charge of the ideas and I know how stuff is built and I know what looks good and I know when I look at an animation how to make it pop, but I don't have to keep going back and relearning the software. Yeah. And so your first uh, group creative director mm -hmm. role comes up at Digitas. Yeah. How does that come about? Um, I won't tell you the full story because it would... It, um, I basically, I had a job offer, so I, I was looking, going, I need to find a more creative role, and I had a job offer from another agency, and um, I actually had the the contract with me, and this is very weird serendipity, I was walking along Commercial Road, and a friend of mine, who was Chief Creative Officer at Digitas, drove past in a car, and like stopped and went, hey, what what are you doing? How are you doing? And I went, I'm fine. I've just got this job offer. And he went, do you want to come and work with me instead? And I went. In his car still. Yeah. And I said, <laughs> yes, but only if you can get me like a contract within the next week because I don't want to lose this job. And he went, all right. <laughs> this whole conversation happened while he's in the car. Yeah. Side of the street. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, so he gave me a job as, as group creative director and that, you know, I was terrified going in there because I'd never been a creative director before. Going in as a group creative director, one of, you know, it was a big step. Um, and I was, you know, went in there going, am I, am I going to be able to do this? What have they hired me for? It's a much bigger agency. They're, they have huge technical capability. Like they're building banking platforms and they're doing like a whole world of stuff which Glue wasn't doing, just doing like the, the fun, super creative brand side of things this was like heavy going stuff plus the other stuff I thought how am I going to actually be able to lead teams until I realized they had hired me especially particularly because I was different because mm. because I wasn't you know I didn't fit that mold and I could bring something new into the business this is all going through your mind in the days before starting yeah and, and the like I, I think I went straight into a pitch and um yeah so and, and it was enormous there was like 700 people in the agency so is it the whole of the, um, uh, the you know, big chunk of the Truman Brewery was all. So you're suddenly in this huge place from this like little kind of warehouse space and um, took some getting used to. And what was that? What Looking back, what did you do to sort of help deal with all of those emotions and feeling like, oh my gosh, I've never been in this environment before. What if... I don't know. I think I pulled, like, honestly, I think I pulled on all my experience of having always somehow been in that situation in one way or the other. Um, I went, okay, this is like, it's uncomfortable, but I'm, I, I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. I, I, I know how to ride through this feeling and I know how to, um, and if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it doesn't. <laughs> With my fist clenched. Um, cause as I said, it doesn't always work out. Um, but luckily it worked out brilliantly and they promoted me to ECD really quickly and um, that was really cool. And I have to say, um, my CCO, who, who's my mate, um, Chris, I think he he was so great because in those first like three months or so um, when I got my promotion, you know, usually you would have a manager. I don't know whether this is a good thing or a bad thing, but usually when you would have a manager and you have an appraisal and they talk to you about how well you're going he sat me down and went look you know how well you're going because everyone's telling you and you're doing a great job let's spend the next hour telling uh, and I'm going to tell you about what you're doing really shit <laughs> which is a very Australian way of working 
But I really appreciate it. it. I really appreciate it because I'm like, I had no idea I was doing this and no idea and I can fix this and I can delegate this. And yeah, it was much appreciated. So there's one lesson from that story, which is walk down commercial road with a contract in your hand (laughs) and just look in cars. Honestly, it was. And you might get a job. It was absolute kismet. (laughs) That's very cool. I think that reflects what I said earlier as well in terms of you were ready for something at that moment yeah. in time and it came. You know what? I always, like, I'm a great believer in in opening yourself up to the world and waiting to see what comes your way and to be, and being ready all, all the time. So, you know, I'm always making sure part of me is just, like, open to whatever might, whatever might come my way in whatever form. It doesn't have to be work. And what was the transition like from... Group, group creative director yeah. to ECD. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I'm really proud. I think Simon and I, between the two of us, oversaw what I still think is like the best, um, like the peak creative time for that agency. It was before they sold to Publicis and sort of building up for a few years to to the sale. But what work were you making? Oh, man, all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, which, But I think the thing I'm most proud of there is having come from glue and knowing how powerful a really great environment is like that feeling of being on a pirate ship, right? Going into the creative unknown with excitement rather than fear mm. and being able to bring that into, to, it was called LBI at the time, but into Digitas. Go, okay, we're going to try for stuff that's out of our reach. We're going to hire people that are kind of maybe a bit too good for us right now, because even though we might only keep them for a year, they are going to take us to some amazing places in the meantime. Um, and the culture that we built there was so wonderful and so tight and there was so much creative energy. Um, and yeah, and we made some amazing work, you know, serious stuff like, um, totally replatformed Virgin Atlantic and their whole booking system and brought like joy and kind of humanity and the Virgin spirit into like all of those touch points, you know, an amazing mobile app, did some really fun films for them as well did one of my favorite pieces of work ever, which was for Macmillan Cancer Support. And they came to us with, I think it was 10 grand, asking whether we could build a website that you filled in your, you know, postcode in your name and it would pop out a pro forma letter to send to your MP uh, lobbying for um, uh, fuel poverty for cancer uh, patients. Mm -hmm. So because a lot of cancer patients, they obviously get a lot colder and they're not able to pay their bills and what have you. And we looked, took one look at that and actually the planner, Ed, said, you know, I've done some research and no one ever reads those pro, pro forma letters, they go in the bin. So we said to Macmillan, okay, we've got this idea for this other thing that we want to do. If it fails, we'll do your letter. But what if we could create a petition and what if we could create the first ever knitted petition mm-hmm. uh, around what keeps you warm? So we basically hacked this industrial knitting machine um even things like the tensioning we like ripped the hand towels out of the bathrooms in the agency to create like a tensioning machine to keep the the scarf straight and it was knitting like this giant scarf so you could go onto a website you could write what keeps you warm and people wrote really beautiful things about you know lost loved ones and all sorts of things um that was the way of signing the petition to end fuel poverty for cancer patients uh, because we didn't have money for moderation, we translated whatever they wrote into a, like a, a unique knitting pattern. 
So this scarf just kept on getting longer and longer and longer and longer and longer. It was all live streamed. Um, it would break down all the time. And there were about four of us whose phones would beep in the middle of the night if the machine broke. Then you'd have to go into the office, put a sheet mask on and fix a machine wearing a sheet mask. And then people would watch this thing all day to see when the sheep were going to come, which was just brilliant, like hashtag sheep mask. And we ran that for a couple of months in the basement and ended up with this petition. It was longer than Ben, Big Ben is tall. Um, I can't remember. One of the princes took a bit to the North Pole and we got the law changed. And that for me, like, I'm super proud of that. But the process there was like every week we would stop and go, can this project go any further? How are we going to make this happen? Do we have to revert to plan B? You know, where are we going to get the wool from? We've got no money. How are we going to, like the tensioning machine, everything's curling. How are we going to fix it? One of the creative techs literally went to the bathroom and went, these automatic like hand towel dispensers, they've got a tensioning mechanism. Let's rip it off the wall. <laughs> so, you know, I love that. Amazing. And I think, yes, it's obviously we'll get to it, but it's a, it's a trend in your career and, um, yeah, of doing work that makes a difference and yeah, and positive change in the world. Yeah, and the the next step after that, you know, you're having a great time mm-hmm. at Digitas. Yeah, first ECD role sounds like it's going great, having fun. Yeah, and so when does Dare come into the picture? So Dare, so Flo Heiss, who was the ECD at Dare, I've known him for a very long time, and I will talk just very quickly about the power of power of peer groups. So. Right from when I was at Glue, this thing, this organization was created called Creative Social. It was created just by a, like a creative, actually, and, and a guy who used to be the CFO at Chael, Danny Ellie. And it was a way of digital creative directors getting together because we had so little power in the industry because no one cared about digital. Everyone cared about above the line. The above the line creative directors got all the column inches, all the fame, all the everything. And if you're doing digital you were very much ignored and seen as lesser. So they came together and went, why don't we build basically a social group where we get to know one another and share things. And that grew from a couple of people to, in the end, a couple of hundred people with some really like famous names in there over the course of maybe 10 years where it ran. We would spend quality time together. We would share each share work with each other before it went live and comment on the work. We'd talk about the industry and help raise each other's profiles. We'd help each other. If we saw someone amazing and we couldn't hire them, we've still got a WhatsApp group. It's been like over 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but that one thing meant I knew Chris from Digitas and I knew Flo. And uh, Flo and I had just always gotten on and we, I think we both loved each other's work and we have very similar music tastes, which is great because it's not that common. Um, and he was looking for a creative partner at Dare and just called me and said, do you want to come to Dare? And I thought, you know, LBI has been brilliant or Digitas has been brilliant. And I've learned everything about full system integration and, you know, like how to like run a server farm and all sorts of like, you know, such expansive digital knowledge and really deep digital knowledge and what digital strategy really is. And, but I want to go like head on into just making super creative stuff again. And, you know, they'd won agency of the decade. And so I thought I would uh, jump in there. And you did. And I did. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it, it says board level. What does that yeah. mean for, for in that scenario? Yeah, absolutely. So I sat on the, I sat on the board 
Um, that was the first time experiencing that. Was it? No, I'd, I'd sat on the management board. At Glue, I was on the management board, not the exec, the management board. Uh, when I went to Dare, I was part of the exec. And so for those who, who don't know what that is or haven't experienced yeah. that, what what is that? It's super, super important. Uh, when you see those people squirrel themselves away for a couple of hours, you know, every week or every other week, you look, you look at the financials, you look at the health of clients and what direction they're moving in. You look at the profitability of clients. You look at the latest work and you discuss the latest work. You probably talk about new business, what's coming in, uh, what other business opportunities, if there are any acquisition opportunities or um, if there's been feedback from HR or the people team about things. You talk about policy and the policy of the agency, whether that's you know maternity policy or bereavement policy or what have you. There might be things about behavioral stuff. There might be stuff about a new appraisal system. It's everything to do with the functioning of a business. And who's in the room? It would be C-suite plus. So, you know, you've got your CEO, you've got your, you know, you've got your MDs in there, you've got your CFO in there, you've got your chief creative officer or your ECD or what have you in there. Um, but you could, could have, depending on the agency, could have a ton of people or just a few. Um, you know, you've probably got your head of people in there. You might have head of reputation or, you know, PR in there. You could have your CMO in there. It very like Each agency is very different. Are you an agency or brand that would like to work with our production company, Unity and Motion? If so, contact us at unityandmotion.com. We produce commercials and social content for brands such as Chanel, Amazon, Reebok, Harrods, The Ritz, and many more. Now back to the show. You have this, you know, great new role. Yep. On board level, you're there for a year. Uh huh. And it's going great, having a great time, and you decide to leave it all. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, it's. Um, I don't think anyone at Dare would object to me saying this. I think Dare had gone through a really difficult time. They'd merged with another brilliant agency called MCBD. You know what? I think generally they would. Everyone there was just too nice. So when I arrived. There was kind of an assurance that all the hiccups had been ironed out. And when I got there, I realized, you know, there were multiple MDs. There were multiple heads of strategy. There were there were so many people in so many different places and no one had done the integration bit at all. When I joined the creative department, there were still some creatives that weren't reporting into me because they came from MCBD and they used to report into the old ECD who'd left to, to create Lucky Generals. Um, but... Like none of that, and none of the plumbing had been fixed. Mm. So it was really difficult. And I did some brilliant work there and met some brilliant people there. And again, it felt, it felt like a family, but I honestly, honestly think everyone was too nice. So it, including myself, I have a terrible problem with being like too nice about things sometimes and learning. So it, it just made it really, really difficult. On top of that, I think flow had gone through just such a hard time because it was his baby. Like he found a he was one of the founders of Dare, and and he could see it wasn't working, and so you know, there, you know, he had a lot of stress, and so it just became a, like a brilliant place, but quite a difficult place, and a place where I could see that I wasn't going to be able to fix all the problems because someone in charge of the, you know, the the people in charge of the business had to be the ones who were going to fix the problems, and at the same time, so we had Diageo as a client at Dare, Bacardi approached Dare to do uh, to Dare to do some work and we couldn't do it because of conflict. 
So one of the heads of strategy who'd been the like the CSO at um, at Dare, and one of the MDs from Dare, Claire and Nick, had formed like a separate business unit which didn't have a name at first to take on some of the Bacardi work and to very much do I guess it's business strategy really so looking at the business and looking how how Bacardi delivered ads and the whole structure of their business how they should change to get better work um, and all the internal training that you know they that was called Mr. President and then very soon after they realized that Bacardi said, you've given us a framework, but none of the agencies we work with can deliver the work you're telling us we should be delivering. Can you do creative work? And they went, okay, we need a third partner. So they were in the same building um, and I was looking for something else and we kind of got match made. And as soon as I met Nick and Claire, I went, you know what, I'd love to join a, you know, join a business with you. And, um, you know, I'm, uh, like I said, I'm a great believer in being open and in kismet. Claire is going to laugh at this if she ever hears it. But uh, I'd just been to visit my friend Elvin, the one I was telling you about, the, the lateral corporate whore. She's Turkish and she was living back in Istanbul. And I visited one of her friend's mums, who is a like renowned uh, coffee ground reader. She read, read my coffee grounds and she said, you'll know where you need to go because of the door. And I thought, whatever, bollocks. Um, and then um, when I met, went and met Claire and Nick, Claire had just installed this massive door into their new office. It's a beautiful door. I'm like, why on earth is this door here? Mm-hmm. Her, her um, husband's an architect and had found this like incredibly ornate, beautiful door. And it was right in the middle of the office. And I went, okay, whatever. I don't know whether it's a sign or not, but it's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite cool because I guess getting a new door is not it's not what you do every day. No, I mean it was it was the only thing in the entire office. It was just a box with a door. So yeah, you saw the door. <laughs> I saw the door. Went okay. Did you yep. ever see the coffee reader again? No, you know what? No, I didn't. <laughs> well, if you ever ever have a tough decision, I'd go back. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like they know what they're talking about. Yep. Um. Yeah, so went and joined them and and built Mr. P. You know how how did it go from being a business unit of Dare mm-hmm. to being you guys going set off your own company? Yeah, so it was a business unit of Cosette, who was a holding company. So Dare, there were a couple of agencies that were owned by Cosette. Dare was one of them. So they basically got permission to set up a new agency, a new unit within Cosette, and then a couple of years later, we bought it back from Cosette, so it was fully independent. Okay, so you guys bought it back off uh-huh. them, I see. Yeah. So you had to invest your own money, make it yours. Yeah, well, luckily, I mean, and this, again, Bacardi were, until they weren't, probably the best client I've ever worked with. Mm. So, um, you know, they really made it a lot easier for us to get off the ground, to find an, our own office. So we went using their space to hire people because they had just such a huge volume of, of work and it was so much fun working with them. Mm. Were you like nervous about starting a business or you felt like you'd done this kind of before plenty of times? No, I wasn't nervous at all. I was really excited because, I mean, who wouldn't be excited about having your own thing? Um, yeah, no, well, not nervous at all. Would one day have your own agency? Yeah, because it must have been quite a, yeah. almost like a mental leap to a degree because you've been going through all these different agencies and being employed in so many places yeah. to then, right, this is mine. Yeah. You know what? I don't know whether this is helpful or not, but I have never had a plan to do anything. 
Like I've never had a plan to have my own agency, to be a CCO, to come to London. I've never gone, my 10-year vision is X. I've always gone, am I learning new stuff? Am I loving work every day? Am I with good people? Is there other that I want to be doing? And then, like I said, being open to the world in terms of like, what next? Mm. Um, it seems to have, you know, it seems to have taken me in the, in a relatively decent path, I would say. But yeah, I'd, I'd never imagined I would have my own agency, but I never imagined it was a big step to have one either. It was, just felt like the right thing. And at a time when the digital industry was being completely crucified by the big tech platforms. You know, it used to be you could put so much creativity into what you were doing in digital. Like I said, you could make a banner ad or a robot and everything was being pulled towards similar formats, similar, you know, you'd have, and, and obviously Facebook, what have you, Meta have got all the data, but, you know, they'd go around to all the clients going, you have to start with your logo. You've got to have a face in the first two seconds. You've got to do whatever, whatever the rule was at the time. Yeah. And the rules kept changing. The t text can only be, you know, a certain size in the asset. Uh, so suddenly you went from having all of the tools to having a really limited set of tools. And, and there, there were obviously there are creative things that can be done with those platforms, but it just destroyed everything in its path and then obviously with programmatic coming in as well and more money coming into digital so there's more people looking at it measuring I would say like the wrong things often so you know you're measuring click through so people are creating bots to click through or to you know to, to view something for a certain period of time so it's not even getting in front of a human certainly not creative but it's delivering the results that the clients are tracking so they're not going to get fired for it so we've kind of unfortunately created a little bit of a mess in the digital space, I think, by not focusing on what we know works everywhere else, which is creativity. I know Meta's rode back from that and they're talking a lot about creativity as are some of the other platforms. But the reality is there's so much more than those platforms. So what we thought with Mr. P is if we could take the best of digital, like thinking about the audience first, like proper digital and experience planning, um, that bravery in terms of the outcome could be anything we're gonna do the right thing for the job like a couple of great things not filling a media plan yeah it seemed like a, a good place to start so the best of digital but applying it to through the line work and how did you so see there were three of you how did you decide for anyone listening who's thinking of starting a business or having yeah. some partners how do you decide who would do what claire, well claire and nick already had the partnership there and claire is the most amazing she's like a ninja she can she's a client whisperer she can get anyone to do anything without looking like she's done anything she's so calm um and magical and nick is like the biggest brain box he's actually incredibly creative but he's he's a fantastic strategist and then we had a really good team right from the get-go of people a lot of whom were at dare who's so an amazing experience planner an amazing woman who's now the md there an amazing creative who was my right-hand person who actually I think was freelancing there before I even started, um, who's now the, the, the ECD there, the CCO there, John. So it was a, it was a super close team and everyone just played to their strengths. Mm, yeah, I think there's a great merit in playing to your strengths. Yeah. And it's something that Charles and I have, have learned about ourselves in our, in our journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say it's the best piece of advice someone ever gave me and it was when I was at Digitas and 
one of the creative directors, Abby, I think I was really stressing about not being able to do something. And she said, focus on what you're good at and make it shine like the sun so that no one sees the stuff that you're not good at because the stuff you're not good at is going to be someone else's sun. And uh, it's so much better than going, what am I really bad at? And I'm going to put all my time trying to make good what I'm rubbish at. So much better to focus on what you're good at. What advice do you have to share someone who's who's in a job at the moment? They'd like to start their own company or they're thinking about it. Yeah. What would you say? Make sure you have partners. Don't do it on your own. Like mm. The fact there was three of us, I said, as I said, plus a tight team around us, but there were like three of us at the center means we got through really rocky times together. Like we got through awful personal situations where someone just couldn't function. We got through losing our biggest client and realizing our contracts went right and they were just walking out the door tomorrow and we weren't going to get any more money from them. And, you know, it's like, I don't know, 60% of our revenue or something walked out the door. Ouch. We've got through our office burning down. We've got through like so many things we've been able to get through. We were able to get through because we got through them together. And if someone was not on form, the other two people would step in and protect them and everyone had each other's back. I think you have to have that because otherwise it, it must be such a lonely place. Mm. Talk to us about that because that's a massive thing. You, you, what, you do you get a phone call from this as a client that's bringing in, as you said, sixty, yeah, yeah something like that, something percent, yeah, business of your revenues, and they and what happened? They said we can't. They did a deal on a golf course with a network agency, and all the work just disappeared overnight. It's basically, I mean, it maybe honestly, it maybe took about a month or six weeks or something to walk out the door. When you hear the news, how do you find out the news and what, what are you feeling? Well, we're just like, the first thing is we've got to protect our people. So um, we did everything that we could to make sure that we kept our people, you know, including pay cuts and like every, everything that we possibly could to make sure that as many people as possible didn't lose their jobs. And I, I th don't think, I think there were maybe a couple of people that we had to let go, but it wasn't very many, um, you know, but ask people everyone in the agency to like defer things and move things around and do what they could afford and what's that like and went out and got any kind of business anything we did the animations for Odeon Cinema like behind the hot dog stands with the moving hot dogs and the menus because we're like it, it's 20 grand or whatever and we need some money so yeah. let's do some let's do those animations <laughs> what and what did you like what did you learn in that experience of just kind of surviving that yeah, look, I think you learn that learn where your resilience comes from. Mm. You know, to get through something like that and to come out the other side and to go, we've got this, um, is really powerful. Because I think at first you're just in a headspin. You don't know what is going to happen and you don't know how to approach it. And all you could do is go, I'm the boss and well, we are the boss, bosses, and we are the ones driving the bus. And if we panic, everyone else is going to panic. So we have to do what needs to be done and do it really, really calmly and roll our sleeves up, which is what we did. And the company's still going to this yeah. day. It was listed in one of the top 100 places to work in the industry. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like, honestly, I'm so proud. I love those people so much. <laughs> but as, as you're talking now, we know that you're not currently at Mr. Yep. President. We know you're at Grey. Yep. Tell us the story of, of what happened. Yeah, so... Um, it was 2020 and 
So a couple of big things are happening. First of all, the bushfires in Australia, which really threw me because they were very close to my parents' house. And our old home in Canberra had already been burnt down by bushfires after we'd moved out of there. And I was, you know, and they're not spring chickens anymore. So, you know, I, was, I had kind of that going on in my head. Um, I had uh, some, you know, my son wasn't having a great time at school and... I was thinking, you know, there's going to be probably change there and then looking at the business and we were doing okay, but we weren't doing brilliantly and we were kind of looking at how to kind of reduce costs again. And this is at a time, this is 2020, this is when the world is locked down. So it's just before the lockdown and then you could see COVID coming around the corner. Right. And um, it was like, I think this thing is really going to make an impact and there's already the business is in, under so much pressure already and I've got all of this other stuff going on in my head you know how do I if I need to you know move my son into another school and I have to pay for it how am I going to do that for example it sounds um, were you extremely like stressed at this time yeah yeah but it was more like uh, trying to lay things out and you know and figure out what I needed to change to fixed you know to to make things better so it was stressful but it wasn't a panic it was like okay I've got these things happening what is going to be the best thing and we'd all worked together for like eight years and as I said I think they're so dear to me but when I looked at what was coming around the corner and I looked at what I was doing in the agency where I mean John is absolutely brilliant and he was doing most of the like the day-to-day creative direction of the work um you know we were looking at we're going to have to put people on furlough, but those people who we might have to put on furlough, they're actually the ones doing the work. And when, like I took a step back and went, you know, I know I'm important to the business because I'm a founder, but if I was from the outside going to remove one thing from this picture, which is going to make the biggest financial difference for the least impact in terms of the work, it would be removing myself. You know, because I spent a lot of time out there talking about the agency in the world. I spent, you know, a lot of time doing the thought leadership pieces. Um, and you could see all of that was going to go during COVID as well. So I'm like, if if I was going to put one person on furlough or tell them to f- off, it would be me. And that might, you know, you'd be able to keep that person and that person or or be able to move a little bit more quickly. But so it made me the think. Who's really, who was there at the start and mm-hmm. started this? Yeah. How that- did it? How what were you feeling to then think? Yeah, like like sad, but it just seemed like it was such an obvious thing to me that the most sensible person to go with was me. And you know, and then at the same time, I had a number of other job offers come in. One of which was in Australia, and again, like the bushfires had happened, I was thinking about my parents. I was thinking about having to possibly put my son into a private school. I was going, okay, maybe. You know, maybe something, maybe this is the universe telling me something has to change. Um, and uh, so I just put myself out there and I had these job offers and I, yeah, and I took the one at Grey. Yeah, so you came to this realisation that, okay, me going is is what I think yeah. is the best. When you had that conversation with your other business partners. What, how- yeah, and it was all really difficult because in the middle of all of this happening, the lockdown happened and... We went on lockdown in Mr. P as a test lockdown, and then we never went back. I think it happened with a lot of people, right? They went on lockdown a week early, 
or what they thought was maybe a week early and then everything suddenly got locked down. So I never got to go back to Mr P and speak to my business partners face to face. I had to do it over the phone, which was awful. And the staff as well, you didn't get to say goodbye. I didn't get to say goodbye. <laughs> um, but, you know, but, uh, but, I ha- but I still see them all the time. I went to their 10th birthday, you know, six months, it wasn't even six months ago. It was wonderful. You know, I'll always be a founder of that agency. They'll always be my friends. I've learned so much from all of them. But at the time, it just, it was the right time for me to go and try something else. Weirdly, you know, some of the things I was stressed about, like moving my son, never ended up having to happen because of COVID as well. So, so some problems come, some problems go. (laughs) Great. And so your time ends at Mr. Yep. President mm-hmm. in some ways. Yeah. Um, and how does this opportunity to, to um, and we should say, by the way, you were mm. founding partner and chief creative officer at yep. Mr. President. Yes. And this opportunity comes up with um, where you're at now. Uh-huh, at Grey, yeah. Grey. How does that come about? Well... They kind of tapped me up and... Uh, oh, on Commercial Street? No. <laughs> no, I didn't know them. They tapped me up and at first I was thinking, oh, gee, like, you know, I mean, I guess everyone's heard I've had a very unconventional path into where I am and I was like, I'm totally, like, honoured you would even think of me, but Grey is 105 years old and you make, mm. like, proper advertising. <laughs> <laughs> and... Am I really the right person for the job? Like, don't you want someone who's made the most famous TV ad of 2020? Were you ever saying this? <laughs> no, no, no. This is all right. going on in my mind. Right. During the interview stages or just before you spoke to them? No, you know what? Because I just went into the interview going, I'm just going to go for this because the one thing I'm really excited about is it scares me. And um, that means it's an opportunity for growth. Back on the pirate ship. Back on the pirate ship. I'm just going, like, give me something that scares me. I, I don't want to sit somewhere and be complacent. I what I was thinking about the things that I loved in my career at Digitas. One of the things I loved most actually was the scale of it and the fact that sometimes you really had to fight to get the thing that you wanted. Like you get told no and then you have to be a bit naughty and do it anyway. And then it, you can t- not turn around and say, I told you so. But, you know, like there's a little bit of like mischief that I like in being told no that I realized I was was missing a little bit when no one ever tells you no because it's your business. So I thought, okay, Grey could be really interesting. It's part, part of WPP. Um, it's, you know, famous for a certain kind of work. It's had really famous people in the role that I'm being asked to, you know, go uh, apply for. So I'm just going to go for it because, because it scares the shit out of me and that's great. <laughs> nice. What was, what is the, for for anybody who'd like to be a CCO, Chief yep. Creative Officer, what's the in, what is the interview process like for a role like that, and what advice do you have through that process? Absolutely. So the really interesting thing is because I hadn't done a portfolio for ages, I had to get my portfolio together. That is a thing. Like <laughs> that yeah. took me a while, um, but it is literally meeting all the senior people in the business, both the creative, obviously, but from the business point of view and globally as well as in the UK. So um, I met a lot of people and I met a lot of people really quickly because the world was starting to close. Um, And then 
What kind of questions would they ask you? Well, a, a, you know, a lot of it is to do with the work, obviously, because you have to show that you're going to bring creative excellence into the business. Mm. Running, you know, running the team, running the department, um, growth, your kind of appetite for, I guess, kind of risk versus rewards, the kinds of clients that you're passionate about, um, what you're personally passionate about, looking at your values, personal values, and whether that kind of connects to the business values how you work well and might manage upwards and downwards, right? So how you, how I got on with my global chief creative officer, um, what I could contribute to the business. Like it was pretty wide ranging depending on who I was meeting. And advice going through that process, looking back, what would you... Look, I think you are only going to be a success if you are yourself, mm. right? And everyone is different. Like I, I'm not the cookie cutter template for a, a CCO and nor is anyone else, I think you bring to the role what is inside you and um you know with taking that advice into account you have other people around you who can do the stuff that is not your son (laughs) (laughs) so you go through the interview process yep and do you remember the day when they said laura it's you yeah i do because they said laura it's you you need to sign this straight away because um this COVID thing is really, really crazy and we don't know when we're going to get a hiring freeze. <laughs> so you've got to make up your mind. Um, and as I said, I had like two roles on the table and one was back in Oz. Um, and big decision. Yeah, that's a big it decision is. in itself. And in the end, I put it to a family vote. Wow. And we ended up here. And so you stayed. And so I stayed. Uh, how long did it take you to make that decision? Maybe a week. And all the time they're probably like... Hey, Laura. Yeah, just quickly, quickly before things shut down. Yeah, and then obviously you kind of started at great in the midst of turmoil. So I was the first remote employee. Oh, wow. Which is a thing. And stepping in to kind of lead a, a team, lead a team through this incredible change, which was, you know, exactly as tumultuous as, as really what it was as Mr. P. Like money turned off over, uh, you know, clients turned off overnight, people to look after, yada, 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 yada. So it was a little bit of a... A baptism of fire. Yeah. How did you embrace leadership in a time like that where you couldn't see everyone physically? You know what? I made sure I got one-to-ones in with everyone really, really early mm. and for like big chunks of time. And I still do it. I still do one-to-ones with everyone in the team, mm. like really, really regularly. What's What's your kind of process for the one-to-ones? Do you have a sort of particular style and approach you do it that you think would work well for others? No, look, I think sometimes it's about work. And with the more senior teams, it's more often about the work. Very often it's just like, like, how are you? Like, how are you really? Um, what's going on? How's your cat? Has your dog come home from the vet yet? <laughs> you know, what things are you really stressed about at the moment? Just trying to make sure that everyone feels like they belong and that someone is there to listen, which at the end of the day, the more senior you get, the more your role is really to be at the service of the people that work for you, right? Yeah. You're not just chief creative officer, though. You're mm. president as well. Yeah. Explain that for us. Yeah, so um, I kind of won't go into the details, but obviously COVID caused like a lot of turmoil. And I think, you know, Grey's had quite a lot of changes, even before me, you know, there have been quite a lot of changes in London and globally. And um, we were without a CEO for quite a while. And... Um, you know, one day got a call. I, I had a conversation around you'd be a great CEO one day and maybe you can kind of, 
you know, learn the ropes. And I thought, that's great. And then that conversation disappeared. And then it was literally, do you want to step in and do that role? And I was like, yeah, of course, of course I do. Like, because I, I love the people there so much. And actually, I think one of the things that happened when I came in as, as CCO was I realized how much I knew about running a business because I just, you know, learned it. Even being the chief creative officer in my own business, you learn everything about business. So I had come in and I'd implemented a load of stuff and restructured stuff and like worked with, I've got an amazing CFO, by the way, Liam, who's a, a total superstar. Um, you know, we'd had to take a lot of difficult decisions together and we'd have to work through a lot of stuff together and seeing like a, a dramatic change in the quality of the work and the profitability of the agency and the, the culture of the agency. And so I felt like, honestly, like so honoured that they would ask. Um, at the time they said, we won't call you CEO because then you get caught up in all the the WPP stuff. Um, so we'll call you president. I brought on two MDs, one who's internally, like an internal promotion, who's brilliant, and an external person. They, between them and my CFO, they, they know all the that I don't know, right? They are brilliant. And so that allows me to do the bit, which I guess is the president bit, which is be the face of the agency, set the vision for the agency, be the, I guess, the the heart of the agency or like sort of, you know, ground ground the agency culture in a certain place and make sure we stay on track. Have all the tough, you know, a lot of the tough conversations with people when that kind of stuff has to happen or, um, you know, what I'm realising now is actually the more I'm leaning in and getting involved in WPP, the better it is <laughs> because they've got a load of stuff to offer which Grey has never availed themselves of because they've always been a little bit of the black sheep and gone, oh, you know, we're not really part of a network agency. Actually, it's been brilliant. So I'm doing much more of what I was told I shouldn't have to worry about. What What do you enjoy about that stuff? There's so many skills and so many great people out there within the network that we don't have connections. Like it's built, it's building the connections. I'm, you know, I've always been a really collaborative, creative. I've always built stuff with a team. I'm not one of those people that sits off and makes things on on my own or writes something on my own. It's very much, you know. It's all about the collaboration, bringing different people together. And, and what excites me is like the more different in, uh, like literally at Grey, we call it the collision of difference. The more different in, the more interesting out, right? It's like the bang of creativity comes from different points of view, different backgrounds, different skill sets, all of those things smashing together to make something new. So what I've been loving the most is that there's so many interesting people and new skills in those other businesses, which um, we can kind of, smashed together with what we do how many ceos and ccos are there and how do you do both and are you transitioning <laughs> away from the creativity to do more of the ceo type um, stuff the the answer is not very many at gray there is someone in my position in germany as well francie she also rocks um what role is she in sorry so she's president and cco as well i see um but yeah, not not very, not very many of us do both, and not very many people transition from creative into the business side, or, or actually vice versa. Do you think there's a good reason for that? Do you think it's just naturally that way? Do you think it should be more? I think some people are very happy just doing creative. Some people are very happy doing business. I think there was an enormous value in a creative company having someone who knows how stuff is made and mm. how to get to great being in charge of the business and being able to pull the levers in order to make that happen. Yeah. 
um, because I think too often they're they're really separate. Um, And certainly the early years of digital, people used to be much more like practitioner, business owner, strategist, everything all in one. And you kind of, you understand what you need to do to make great work. Um, Whereas, you know, businesses are bigger and more formalized, that doesn't happen. So I feel really privileged there. I also think as creative people, one of the biggest rorts that's been sold to creative people is you do it because you love it. Therefore, you don't care about the money. You know, here's so much stuff about artists don't need supporting because they're going to do it anyway because they're just passionate about art. Or um, creators don't need training because they just like love it anyway and they're just like passionate so we'll spend the money and other parts of the business on more formal training. And certainly like hangover from even like 10 years ago, particularly at the traditional agencies, was if creatives find out about the money, it's going to somehow cut the corners off the creativity. So we're not going to tell you about budgets. I'm not going to take you to client meetings. The account people will present your work. They'll have all the hard questions. You know, we'll keep you in your golden magical cell because creativity is magical and somehow it's going to break it. But creativity is not magical and you're not going to break it. And under- without understanding the money and your client's business, you have no power. So what's your advice to people in creative roles then? Understand the business and understand your understand your client's business. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Because I guess that, that then stops those those blockers, those markers that they didn't even know were there because they didn't understand something. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, we, we, we've we just launched something actually with She Says. It's called The Way. It's like an online tool for sort of middle career women in the creative industries. And it, it learns a little bit about you and then it feeds you a, um, a module you know, every month, the training module every month, we've made sure in there are really important things like finance, mm. how to read a spreadsheet, all that stuff. It sounds really boring, but it's really, really not boring because that is what is keeping your lights on and paying your bills and feeding your stomach. Mm. Are there any secrets to, or s- secrets or strategies or things that you do as a CCO or, or president? Yeah. That and there might be tools where you manage your time, the processes. What are things that if you weren't to do them, things would crumble pretty quickly? And you, these are things that have really worked for you that you could share. Uh, I walk to work every day. I don't go into the office every day, but every day I go to the office. I walk, which is about an hour and twenty minutes. Uh, that is my yeah, me cool. time where. I plan the day and actually even if I'm not walking into work to spend, I need time at the beginning of the day to plan my day. It's when I'm at my most creative, it's where I connect a lot of the dots in my thinking. So just like actual thinking time and I find walking is really good. Something about walking somehow kind of stimulates your brain to make those connections. And just getting into the minutiae, when you say plan your day, what do you do? Do you write it on a notepad? Do you have a notes app? Do you Sometimes I speak it, sometimes I put it in the notes app, sometimes I email it to myself, sometimes I scribble it on the back of my hand, basically whatever I've got in my pocket. (laughs) Um, And you're planning what exactly? So it could be uh, suddenly an idea will come to me for a campaign, like an an issue that I've had, you know, in a campaign or a problem with a client and suddenly go, oh, actually we could do it like this or a question about new business and how something is going to be structured and suddenly that shape will come to me. So it could be anything, but it's kind of when I formulate a lot of my ideas in that walking time. Mm, great. I love that. And anything else? I get a lot of sleep. I know. You know how many hours? Well, I am an early early morning person. 
So I'm usually up, I was up at quarter to six this morning, but usually up like between quarter to six and about 6.30, but I'm usually in bed by like 9.30. That's the way, absolutely. <laughs> you know, if I, I like go to bed at nine and spend a half an hour listening to a podcast and falling asleep, that's my heaven. <laughs> now you can listen to yourself on podcast. Yeah, exactly. Put myself to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, there are any other strategies maybe from yeah the the president side or CEO? Yeah, side? I mean, I guess. Um, I mean, I've, I'm very lucky that I have an EA, but it's just the you know always checking sort of what, what what's next. Like you know, making sure if if I if I didn't have Lou. When I was when I was at Mr. P and I didn't have anyone, I would have to be constantly kind of checking my diary. Cause I'm I'm really shit at planning my time, and I would be double and triple triple booking myself all the time, and it would be a real mess, and everything would fall into chaos. So, um, you know, having to go into my diary and like chuck stuff out all the time, all the time, all the time. Luckily, now I have the amazing Lou who helps me to do that. <laughs> um, but, you know, t time management is really, really important. So I'm very glad I've got help. Um, doing hard things first. Like I said, I'm like really nice. I think I suffer from being too nice. And sometimes those conversations that you have to have are really, really hard. So I write a bit of a list and put the awful ones at the top. I make sure I get them out of the way as quickly as I can. And there's some, there's some momentum and flow there. Once you get that hard thing done... You're like, oh, yeah, I did it. Yeah. Okay. And then if the next one's not as hard, then you're just like, okay, yeah. cool. And look, and I Go keep to-do lists all the time because, again, like I'm, I'm not good with time management. So unless I have a list, mm -hmm. I'll be distracted on something else or pulled on something else. So um, coming back to my list constantly, I carry it around with me everywhere. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's something really satisfying about looking back at that list. Did it yesterday. Yeah. So many things to do. And I got to the end of the day, I looked at it and I was like, oh, wow. Ticks them all off, and you get so much relief from that. Yeah, and mental clarity as well. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. Like I find I work best if I've got one thing to focus on, I can focus on it fully for a period of time, and then I've got another thing I can focus on because I do get really, really distracted otherwise, and I will find myself doing five things at once and forgetting I've even had a conversation. So it's like, right, okay, I've had that conversation. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to do it now then I'm going to come on to the next thing because otherwise I'll be over here going, oh, yeah, three days ago I was supposed to do that. <laughs> Can you ever see yourself just doing a CEO role and moving out of a creative role entirely? Um, I mean, certainly I love the, I, I, I love the, the president part of my role. Um, I really do. Um, but I also love the work. And then when you actually get to, like, dip in and do the work um i i don't think i could ever take myself i'm um, too hands-on like i still want to get in there and do stuff and write things and make stuff and um yeah that is a totally other diff totally other joy i wonder you know if we would speak in five years time or however long yeah. you would have that same realization did after maternity leave that i'm actually gonna have to step out of Doing it, doing yeah. It, the coding, whatever it is, but now it's just at a high level. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Like, I'm I'm open to kind of whatever happens at the moment. I'm really happy and the business is really happy and that's the the main thing. It's working for the business and it's working for me. Um, I, you know, I just 
jumped into a project yesterday and as soon as I got the briefing I'm like oh my god these are so exciting and I get to do the work and now I've again like Steve's rolled up doing the work and um yeah I don't know that I could put that to one side it's too much fun making stuff well do you know what just follow the door follow the door <laughs> follow the door just go through the door <laughs> yeah when yeah. that door comes you'll know <laughs> yeah we haven't mentioned it yet and I want to is yeah. um okay okay yeah okay so yeah absolutely thank you so OCO is something that I founded over COVID, actually, with an amazing guy called Dave Evans. Uh, he, it's his baby, really. It's his idea. Um, he approached me ages ago to set up a school. It was going to be a physical school that taught um, underrepresented young people about the world of work through this 12-week program that used house music as its kind of backbone. So. You learn how to DJ, but you also learn how to put on an event and you learn about budgeting and you learn about marketing and it would have been awesome. And we got to the point where we were just looking at getting it to launch and then COVID happened and we'd had some feedback from someone actually I used to work at Digitas who said, but yeah, how's it going to scale? How's it going to be as a business? And then Dave had this brilliant idea to flip it to uh, online. So, um, We've been working uh, again with this developer, Carl, and a number of other people who've all contributed. So it's an app that connects any young person, actually, with a mentor in business. And I say mentor, it's not your normal mentoring. It's not like sitting in front of someone telling them about their life like I am now. Um, it is uh, like a very structured six-stage program that helps the young person find their superpowers, understanding what things they put in their own way to success the kind of person they are all of this stuff and kind of pops them out the other end with a much greater understanding of themselves um but the beautiful thing about it is it connects the mentor and mentee through psychometric profiling so through a personality test so even though you are nothing like the person you're mentoring or nothing like you're like the person you're menteeing um uh, you are still very much the same. So you're nothing alike, but you're very much the same. And it's been incredible actually to see it. It is so powerful, like from both sides, everyone gets so much out of it. Um, you get to learn how to, from, I guess, from a mentor point of view, you get to learn how to like manage and have conversations with people who are totally unlike you, which is often really awkward in business. You know, if you haven't, haven't sort of been trained in terms of how to manage people, from the mentee's point of view, they get access to all sorts of people who they wouldn't have been paired with. You can really help them because they know how you work. Um, like for for example, actually the first person I was paired with was so bad at time management that like he would rock up on the wrong day. Um, and I'm like, dude, it's okay, I've been there. I, <laughs> I do it all the time. <laughs> um, so yeah, so that that's just launched. It's weareoko.com. Um so if, if you're someone who's interested in being a mentor or a mentee, they can go to... Yeah, absolutely. So if you're interested in being a mentee, you can just go and sign up. If you're interested in being a mentor, you need to sign up through your business. And that's that's to do with safeguarding. Although the platform is open only to, to mentees who are 18 and above, you do often get people who are, you know, they're a bit more vulnerable than than others. And so, um, you know, it's, all the mentoring is done through business. So you get your business to sign up and then... You okay. can sign up through them. Got it. We are oco.com, right? We are oco.com. Cool. Yeah. 
And finally, especially given the colour of the soap you're on, yeah. it wouldn't be your story without mentioning your presidency of DNAD. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anything, any uh, experience of, of how was that? Yeah, uh, that, that, I mean, that was an incredible experience. It was right when, you know, DNAD is a global organisation and an amazing charity that helps progress, you know, creative careers and particularly with young people. But, you know, all the money that comes in was, most of it was going in terms of uh, going into progressing the careers of people in the UK. Um, when I was president, there are some other amazing organizations around the world who are all have the same aim as DNAD and work in the same way in their charities. Places, uh, people, uh, there's an organization called Curious in India, for example. And the year that I was there was very much about building those connections and doing joint partnerships where the money... You know, for example, that you spend as an Indian agency could go towards helping young creative talent in India get a job in India. So making it a bit more circular, I guess. Um, so I had an absolute ball. I spent a lot of my time traveling. Um, Amazing. Sounds like a fun, fun time. Yeah. Um, we'll come to the end yep. of your life story. Um, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. We will end with a little poem. First up, I'll just share the lessons from your life. And I think your story is a brilliant one for anybody who, yeah, really identifies as a creative person, but feels like, oh, therefore business is not for me, or I'm not a business person. You are like an amazing example for someone who's, you know, an entrepreneur and an exceptional creative who has combined them and doing it at as you said, one of the most respected and um, longest running agencies in the world. And I think that's super cool. And you've just shown throughout your life that resilience is amazing at getting you to amazing places to not give up. It's okay to be different in a different environment. In fact, imagine you're on a pirate ship, go yeah. have some fun. Um, and uh, yeah, life can be a cool, fun journey being, being a misfit. Yeah. Um, and yeah, enjoy enjoy the process. Yeah, yeah. It's all about the process. <laughs> it's all about the process. All right, it's poem time. Okay. So I, I create this poem based off what has been discussed here. I don't say, this is so wicked. <laughs> <laughs> so, careers can have you at ground level or flying high like a chinook, while also not having to follow the path that you think you may need to do. It's okay to take a pivot. Throughout your career, you've been known as a creative thinker, but also a slacker and a lateral tinker. With the skills that we all have inside, you can be one in eight billion, as long as you keep moving forward and don't ever lose your resilience. And if you stay yourself, that is half the battle won. As long as whatever you do, you do it well and make it shine like the sun. Oh man, that's superb. <laughs> Am I allowed to clap? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How I became. See you soon. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Oh, cheers. All right. We can stop the cameras there. <laughs> man, you made me cry.